Um, okay, let's see. We're in a series. What's the series called? What's the series called? And every sermon in the series starts with what letter? Wow, y'all are so smart. Put it on the screen. It's a progressive series. And, you know, honestly, when I start a series, I only have ideas for like the first two or three sermons. After that, God just gives it to me, you know, as the weeks go by. Now, we're, me and God, we're just having fun. We just think of our words together and just decide to, you know, write a sermon on it. Um, so if you got any new R words, send them to me before the series is over and we'll, we'll work with you. Um, I thought of one I should have used a few weeks ago. Remember when I was preaching about the lukewarm church and it said, God said, I'll, I'll, I'll spit you out, you know, I'll vomit you because you're lukewarm. We should have called that sermon uh, regurgitation. Uh, that would have been a good point for R. But anyway, okay, part eight today, we're going to talk about this. Rise. R-I-S-E, rise. Every area of our life that seems dead is an area that God can resurrect. Amen. Our God specializes in resurrecting things that are dead. If there's a dream that has died in your life, God can help it to be risen up again. If there's a relationship with a wayward child that you think is dead and gone, it's not dead, it's not gone, God can resurrect that relationship. It says in Micah 7, 8, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, though I have fallen, I will rise again. Don't ever give up on being sober. Don't ever give up on being free from an addiction. Don't ever give up on a dream that God has put in your heart. No matter how many times you've fallen, no matter how many times the enemies come against you, no matter how old you are, don't ever give up because God has given us the supernatural ability after we got saved to rise up again and again and again and again. Uh, before I get into my three points, I want to tell you a true story that I read a few months ago. It's about a lady from 1928. She was 16 years old. Her name is Betty Robinson Schwartz, and she was the first woman ever to win an Olympic gold medal for track and field. It's a very high honor. She was so excited. She loved to run. 16 years old, she got a gold medal for the U.S. Just a few years later in 1931, she was involved in a plane crash. And when the authorities came there to remove all the debris, they took all the dead bodies and they threw them in trunks of cars. They took them to the morgue. They were going to have them all cremated. While Betty was in the morgue, they discovered she wasn't dead. She was just in a coma. So they put her in the hospital. Several months later, she finally comes out of the coma, and it took her years to be able to walk again because the accident was so severe to her body. But in 1936, she won her second U.S. gold medal for the relay team. The point is this, all the areas in our life that we think are dead, they're just in a coma, and our God can resurrect those dead things. Amen? Okay, three points. They all start with the letter R. Me and God just have so much fun when we talk each week. Uh, the point number one is this, revive your life. Revive your life. Psalms 119.25, revive me or give me life according to your word. So the past few weeks, you know, we've been studying the seven churches in Revelation. Do you remember that? Now, it, it was not even intentional. I just decided to do one of them, and then it seems like every week we're kind of talking about another one. So in point number one, I want to focus on the church of Sardis. And you can take a look up here. There's a picture. And, you know, John's on the island of Patmos. Jesus appears and says, write seven letters, one to each of these seven churches. Give the letter to the pastor. The pastor will read it to the church. And in your Bibles, in a, in a lot of theology, it has a little statement over each one of the different churches in the book of Revelation. There's the lukewarm church, the compromising church, whatever. Sardis was called the dead church. 
So imagine being the pastor of the dead church. That's not a very exciting church to be a part of, right? The dead church. Okay, so let's read about it. Revelation 3, 1 through 3 says this. To the church in Sardis, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And we're going we're gonna to dissect this whole chapter, okay? It says, or this whole passage, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Be watchful. That's the original King James. The, in the Greek, it means to wake up or rise up and reaffirm. Look how much God loves words that start with the letter R as well, okay? And reaffirm what remains of your commitment to me, which is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember what you have received and heard and repent. If... I was trying to think of more R words to be funny, but I couldn't think of any. If you will not watch or wake up or rise up, remember the word watch, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come to you. Okay, before we get into really dissecting this, uh, I need to just point out that last scripture in here where it says I'll come like a thief. Some translations say I'll come like a thief in the night. You don't know when I'm going to come. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but I wanted to point out that thousands of pastors for 50 years have preached that scripture as the second coming of Christ's scripture. It is not a second coming of Christ's scripture. There are second coming enthusiasts that see every scripture in Revelation is the return of Jesus. This is not one of them. Uh, let me just show you how obvious it is not one of them because God wants us to repent and he wants us to pray for the second coming, right? Those two things. So why would he say, if you don't repent, I'm coming back? We would say, oh, don't repent. Please don't repent. Don't wake up. Don't rise up because we want Jesus to return so obviously this is not a second coming of Christ scripture. Do you see that? If not, I can keep going. Also, it was written to a first century church, okay? So it is not a second coming of Christ scripture. Now that I got that out of my system, now let's talk about the rest of the scripture. Uh, reputation. He said you have a reputation of being alive. Sardis had the largest synagogue of that day. The synagogue was the size of a football field, and it was filled with people in church. The church was packed with people. They thought they're alive. Jesus says, you're dead. Spiritually speaking, you're dead. Um, the other seven churches that we talked about, every one of the other ones, the other six, during the salutation and the correction that God gives them, every one of them, Jesus says, either Satan's attacking you or society and the culture around you is attacking you. Every one of them. This is the only church where Jesus says, no one's attacking you. Satan's not after you. The people around you, the worldly people, they're not after you at all. Why would Satan not attack a church? Why would society and culture not attack a bunch of Christians that come to church? Here's why. Because it's a dead church. There's no reason for Satan to attack. A and the church isn't the building. The church is the people. There's no reason for Satan to attack you. If you're not alive in God, if God doesn't have a great plan for your life, this should make you feel good if you feel like you're under attack. That means Satan knows you're alive and growing. Amen. He knows God has a plan for you. We should be attacked by the world around us. If, if you're at a workplace and you're filled with world, worldly people around you, they should talk about you behind your back. Because you get to work on time and you have more excellence than everybody else and you always go the extra mile because you're a Christian. You should be under attack. So I feel sorry for those of you in this room Nothing bad ever happens to you. You have no horrible flesh patterns. Satan never attacks you. You have no problems. I wonder if you're saved or not. Right? Okay, so um, the reason that Sardis was dead, even though you know, they thought they were alive, was because they were an incredibly wealthy city, 
And the church had made a decision. We don't want to cause any waves with the people around us so we can continue to get more people in church and get more money in church. Do you see a lot of churches doing that today? We don't want to preach things that could offend people because we want as many people to come here and we want as much money as we can get. So we don't ever want to say anything that could possibly hurt your feelings. Do you see that in society today? Um, in 1933, the um, Aryan Clause in, in Nazi Germany was trying to be passed. The Aryan Clause said that any Jewish person who was working in a church or held a position in a church could no longer do that anymore. It was a horrible thing to do, horrible thing to do. At that time, there were 18,000 pastors, not, not just Christians, pastors. Of the 18,000, only 7,000 opposed the clause. Why? They didn't want to cause any waves in society. They wanted everybody to like them. They wanted to do whatever it took just to have peace with the world and just get as many people in church and get as much money and all that kind of stuff. And, and it happens all the time. Um, I get probably two emails a month, maybe three, uh, people, not just in our church, but outside, mainly outside the church, asking me how we feel about homosexuality. And it's very interesting because I can tell by the way they phrase it uh, if they're a debater, if they want to fight, or if they're really sincere or not. And the questions are always different. They're never the same. They'll say, how do you feel about homosexuality? And so I'll respond very kindly and graciously, and I'll say, uh, well, you're asking me about a thing and not a person. Let's talk about the person. How do I feel about homosexuals? I love them. Jesus loves them. I love heterosexuals who have problems with lust. I love children who have problems with following their feelings versus doing the right thing. I love every person. And they say, well, what do you believe about homosexuality? And then I'll say, it doesn't matter what I believe because it's not my church. It matters what God believes. So why don't you research what God says and you get back to me and you tell me what God says about it. And we dialogue back and forth and it's really cool sometimes. And I always, it's very important that when you speak the truth, you do it in love. A lot of moron Christians just want to speak the truth, and they never want to do it in love. And when you study the Bible, if you study Leviticus, you won't know God's a God of love. So you have to study the Bible as a whole. Whenever you take a passage or you exegete a scripture, you have to take it with the heart of God and the character of God and with the wholeness of God, right? You can't say, well, this one scripture says, whoa, 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 what about the part that God's love and merciful and great? You have to do the whole thing as a whole. Amen. And so um, I actually, last week I had an email that, that, blew my mind, and, and if you're in the service, I don't know who you are. I saw your name at the bottom, and I don't know you personally, so don't get upset, but uh, a wonderful woman emailed me. She was very kind. It was a very kind email. She said, we've been coming to your church for several months, and we really love it, and we've never been part of a Bible-based church. We don't know anything, and so she said, I need to ask you a question before we really get invested in the church. She said, um, how will you treat and how do you feel about my child who is a non-binary child? Uh, she said, my child has not yet chosen the sex that they want to be, and so how will you treat my child based on what they choose they want to be, regardless of biology, what they want, how they feel? And so I responded to her, I said, well, we're going to treat your child like we treat every child in our church, with love and respect, and when they're back there in children's church, we're going to teach them discipline. If they feel like screaming, we're going to say, no, we don't believe that, that the Bible the Bible's a peace, strife is not, so we're not going to scream. If your child feels like bullying another child, we're going to say, no, we don't treat people that way. Even if you feel like doing it, we're not going to do it. We're going to act on it. We're going to discipline you based on what the Bible says. If your teenager feels like cutting themselves, 
well, the Bible says you shouldn't harm your own body, so we're going to teach them you don't do that whether you feel like it or not. Basically, we teach our children you're not led by your emotions. You're led by what's right and wrong based on the Bible, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and that kind of thing. And see, we, all, we, we love, we play, but adults battle the same thing. We want to do what we feel sometimes, don't we? I can't tell you how many times this week I felt like honking my horn. And I did do it nine times out of ten. I need Jesus. I need Jesus, right? I need Jesus. And they all, all them people had a New Jersey license tag too, by the way. Every one of them. Honk. And they told me, it's so funny, I honked the horn. They told me I'm number one right out the window. They're like, you're number one. Anyway, and so, um, and so I told her, I said, we're also not going to call your child by their feelings. We're going to call your child by what God says their destiny is based on the bio biology that God created them to be. I said, if I feel depressed, don't call me depressed. If I feel like hurting somebody, don't call me mean. You know, you call me by, by, by my destiny, not by my problem, not by my issue. And I remember teaching one of my kids that, and um, whenever I tell a story about one of my children, I promise them that if there's ever a, a negative connotation or something funny, that I wouldn't use their real name, okay? So out of my five kids, let's just say we're going to talk about uh, Feli. We'll just say Feli, okay? So Feli, when Feli was uh, like 11 or 12 years old, um, when the, all kids lived at home, on the weekends, you know, you, you can't find a restaurant that every child's happy with unless it's McDonald's. So we'd let them take turns on where we're going to eat out on the weekends. And they all have to be happy with whatever that child chose, you know, when it's their turn and we rotate. This particular Friday night, it was Feli's turn to choose where we ate. And that morning before school, he told us, and we're excited, and he gets home from school, and tonight's his night, his restaurant. And um, before dinner, about an hour or two before we left, he did something wrong, and I had to correct him as his father. And when I did, he was really offended. His pride got, he was hurt, his feelings were hurt. And he came out of his bedroom, and he was just a little thing, you know. And uh, he said, uh, I'm not going to eat tonight. Y'all go without me. And he went back in his room. I let him cool down for about 10 minutes, and I went there, and I said, eat, Feli. I said, um, <laughs> I said, Feli, and he loves the Bible, he loves Jesus. I said, I, I want to teach you something. I said, the Bible does not um, say that someone is a child or an adult based on their age. The Bible says that a child, an adult, is known by how they act, and children act based on how they feel, and adults are supposed to act based on the Spirit of God, the Word of God, on wisdom. I said, I know your feelings are hurt, but you can't let that keep you from going out and having fun with the family. If you are, then your feelings are in control. I said, okay, and we walked out, and that was it. About 30 minutes later, he came out of his room and he said, Dad, I'm still upset, I'm still offended, but I'm going to dinner and I'm going to have fun with the rest of the family. So I got down on my knees and I said, Eli, Feli. <laughs> I said, today you became a man. He said, what do you, I said, son, today you learned the lesson that most of us adults don't even know, not to be led by how we feel, but being led by what God wants us to do. And that's what we teach, and we teach that to adults too. Now, if I didn't teach that, we could have more people in church. If I didn't speak the truth in love, we could have more money to do more things, but we'd be a dead church. And we don't want to be a dead church, and we don't want to be a dead family, and we don't want to be dead Christians, right? Okay, so it says to watch in the Scripture. Watch. In Greek, that word means rise or awaken. And if you think about it, all through the Bible, when someone's dead and Jesus raises them to life, or Elijah or Elisha, they don't say they're dead, they say they're sleeping. 
right? That's what, the, that's what it translates in the King James. Oh, they're just asleep. And so he wakes them up. Sardis was built on an Acropolis outside of Athens, Greece. An Acropolis is, um, is a Greek word for a high city. I have a picture of one here. It's not Sardis, but it's one like it that I wanted you to see. And um, there's a precipice on the side, which is a very difficult high like mountain to climb. Sardis was so prideful, they thought, nobody can ever hurt us. Society loves us. We're good. We can do whatever we can. As long as we don't hurt anybody's feelings, we're going to keep growing and keep getting more money and that kind of thing. Well, <clears throat> in 547 B.C., Cyrus II got two of his best climbers in the Persian army to climb that precipice. They got, over the, they got up to the walls, and they found uh, it was like a trap door. Historians say it was like a sewage system of the day where the sewage from the city came out and ran down the side of the precipice into the valley or so forth. So they climbed up that sewage gutter tunnel is what it's called, and these two guys went to the front gate of Sardis, and there were two guards there. They killed the two guards. This is a true story. It's in history, and it's, it's just like the movies. They pulled them aside. They took their outfits. They walked around like they were part of the group, you know, just showing off their pride to everybody, saying, hey. Then they go up to the gates, and the two guards, dressed in the other guy's uniform, opened up the gates and allowed the Persian army to come in and take over Sardis and destroy everything. What's so funny is 300 years later, in around 220 B.C. or something like that, Antiochus III was reading about how Cyrus II did that, and he did the exact same thing. Sent two men up the precipice, up to the front gates, killed the two guards, stole their outfit, opened it up, and then they came and took over. The reason this is so pertinent to the story today and the point I'm making is because in both cases, the two guards at the front of the city were asleep. They had fallen asleep. Their Christian life had just fallen asleep. They're just going through the motions. Their marriage just fell asleep. Their dreams just fell asleep. The commitments they made just fell asleep. Their faithfulness just fell asleep. And Jesus is saying, you need to wake up. You need to rise up because any area of your life that is asleep, the enemy's going to come in and take over and destroy it. It, the word watch, keep watch, it's in a very uh, popular scripture that I know you know. When Jesus was praying in the garden and he looks over at his disciples in Matthew 26, 40, and he says this, You men could not keep watch or stay awake with me for even one hour. The very beginning of the salutation in Revelation 3 says the, the, him who has the seven spirits. Some theologians think that's the seven motivational gifts in Romans 12. Other theologians think it's the seven spirits listed in Isaiah 11, even though there's six, and they mention the Spirit of God as the seventh one. But all theologians agree it has to do with the Holy Spirit himself. So the point I'm making is any area of your life that is dead or dying can be revived by the Holy Spirit. Amen. In other words, it's not on you. You don't got to figure it out. You just got to ask for it in prayer and believe and let Jesus do his part. Um, let me ask you a question. Can something that is dead come back to life? Yes or no? Yes. We don't like to say our prayer life is dead, but is your prayer life, was it more alive in the past than it is today? Um, was your finances, were they more alive in the past when you were tithing and honoring God and having excellence than they are today? Romans 8, 11 says, if the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, it'll also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Um, even if your faith is dead, the Holy Spirit can wake up your faith. Even if you got questions and I don't know if I understand the Bible, I don't know what I believe, just pray and the Holy Spirit can wake that part of you up as well. 
Let me ask you this. Um, how many people do you think are listed in the Bible? How many uh, people in the Bible does it say were dead and came back to life? Give me a number. I'm curious what y'all think. How many people in the Bible were dead and came back to life? Listen, you're not going to get it right, and you're going to feel stupid. I'm setting you up, but just do it anyway, just for fun, okay? It's one of those pastor things. How many? Five? Fifty? Two hundred and fifty. You know, when you look it up, well, we know there was one for a fact, so we got that down. We know that. You know, if you Google it, it says about ten. But a lot of people forget. Remember the dead bones of Elisha, and they threw a dead man into the grave, and he came back alive? They kind of forget that. But I think that it was thousands. Here's why. Matthew 27, 53 says this. After his resurrection, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep in death were raised to life. They entered Jerusalem and appeared to many people. The Holy Spirit can revive any area of your life that's been dead. Don't ever forget. Point number two is this. you got to refuse to quit. The, the money is on God. The open doors is on God. The right people, that's all God. Your job is to just refuse to quit. Psalms 51.10, renew a persevering and steadfast spirit within me. No matter how hard it's been, no matter how many times you want to give up, refuse to quit. I don't care if you've fallen off the wagon 20 times, get back up. I don't care if you've been let down 100 times by close relationships, get back up. Keep going forward. Never stop serving and using your gifts. Never stop serving. So another church hurt you in the past? That's okay. Keep serving and using your gifts. You've been through a divorce? Keep serving and using your gifts. You did something stupid? Keep serving and keep using your gifts. Never stop serving God and using your gifts. There's a true story about a guy. He worked at a home improvement business uh, for 30 years. He was planning on retiring within a few years. And uh, due to a corporate restructuring, out of the blue, they just let him go. I mean, his whole life was flipped upside down. He said it was the worst attack he's ever been through, the worst depression, the worst fear he said you could ever imagine. He was planning on retiring. Now he's losing all this stuff. So he decided to start his own home improvement business store, and it failed. So then he got all his money, all his retirement, everything to try a second time. And he tried a second time, and it failed. He had nothing left now. So he called his family. He called his friends. He said, I know this is from God. I know I'm supposed to do this. Please, I, I, I know what's going to happen. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep doing it. He tried it a third time. And the third time it did really well. And he called it the Home Depot. <laughs> what if he had given up? You know, the people who fulfill their destiny, it's not always the smartest people. It's not always the richest people. It's not always the people with less problems. The common denominator in those who fulfill their destiny are the ones who refuse to quit. That's really what it is. If you think you found somebody that's made it and they hadn't fallen a thousand times, you're wrong. They've all fallen. 2 Corinthians uh, 4.9 says this, We're pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We suffer embarrassments, but we do not give up. We're persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. In times of trouble, God is with us. And when we are knocked down, we rise again. Man, I, can't, I didn't say this in first service. I should have got that song by Thumbawamba. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You ain't never going to keep. Now, I think that's about a drunk person, but you need to stay down if you're drunk. But, but we can use it in church. You know what's so funny? I should have brought this too. Man, I forgot about this. 
back oh, 10, 15 years ago, someone flew me down to New Orleans to do a wedding for a friend of mine or whatever, and they were so spiritual. They wanted an hour-long sermon in the wedding, and they went on. I was like, oh, I like to do like 10-minute weddings, right? They're, please preach on this and preach on this and teach about this. Da, da, da. So it was like an hour-long sermon, worst sermon of my life, longest sermon of my life. And while I'm up there, you know, the bridesmaids and everybody's standing up there behind me, and they're getting ready for communion and da-da-da, and I'm preaching this long, boring sermon, and all of a sudden, in the middle of it, I hear, Bam! And everybody in church does like this and looks behind me. I look behind me, and one of the bridesmaids said, boom, just fell down and passed out in the middle of the wedding. I said, what am I supposed to do? So they gave her all the communion that the couple was supposed to use to try to revive her. And uh, they got her up, they put her in a chair, and they told me to keep preaching. So I'm preaching, this poor girl sitting there, you know, sitting in a chair. just fell. What was funny is a friend of mine took the wedding video, and it shows me preaching, and all of a sudden you hear the music start to play, and right when she falls down, the music goes, I get knocked down, but I get up again. <laughs> And I sent it to the bride and groom that I did the wedding for, and we're not friends anymore. <laughs> That's actually a very true story. They hate me now. But anyway, love me, hate me, whatever. So there was this farmer who had a, a donkey that he really loved. And one day the donkey was walking around the property, and the donkey accidentally fell into this old abandoned well. It was 50 feet deep, very narrow well, dirt at the bottom. And the donkey was all messed up, scratched, bruised, bleeding. And the donkey started screaming. So his owner runs over and looks at what's going on. And, uh, man, he can't believe his donkey fell. He's trying to figure out how to get him out the well. Uh, this donkey starts speaking in tongues and prophesying and doing whatever he can to get out. It was Balaam's donkey. That'd be funny, right? Balaam's donkey. Anyway, and uh, donkey. What's that from? Donkey. Donkey. Shrek. And so the donkey's in there screaming, and the, 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 the owner of the donkey, he analyzes the situation, and he thinks, I, I don't know, I can't get the donkey out, but I love the donkey. So he thinks, I'm just going to have to put him out of his misery. The well's not worth saving. I can't get my donkey out. So he decided he was just going to bury the donkey alive, pour dirt on him. throw up And so that donkey's in there, the dirt hits his back, and he's thinking, I cannot believe that my owner is going to bury me alive. He started getting depressed, more depressed. The dirt's getting heavier and heavier on his back. And right when he was about to give up, he had this brilliant idea. He thought, when the dirt hits my back, instead of giving up, I'm just going to shake it off and rise up. So with every blow after blow, the dirt hit his back, and he'd shake it off, and he'd rise up. Dirt hit his back, he'd shake it off and rise up. Do you know after an hour of doing that, that donkey was able to step triumphantly over the wall of that well and walk into freedom. The dirt that was trying to bury him was actually the dirt that saved his life. The, the very giant sent by the enemy to destroy David was the giant God used to promote David. The brothers that threw Joseph in the pit, the pit was what God used to get him to the palace. And in life, we all have dirt shoveled on our ass from every now and then. We just got to <laughs> shake it off, shake it off, and rise up right out of it. I shouldn't have done that. Lord, forgive me. That was not right. That was not right at all. That was not right. Lord, forgive me. And bless all the Methodists out there too, Lord. And so one of my favorite stories, about one of my top three favorite stories is, is David. You know, I love David, and he spent his whole life fighting and fighting and fighting. And he finally gets crowned king over Israel. 
In 2 Samuel 5, they put the crown on his throne, and he's so excited, and he finally gets there. And like the first four verses are, they crown David king of Israel, and the very next verse talks about the next enemy that's before him. And I think David must have thought, God, when is it all going to end? You know, one fight after another fight. This specific enemy was called the Jebusites. The Jebusites were living on land that God promised David. In fact, God told David that city that they're on is going to be called the city of David. It, too, was on an acropolis. It was built very, very high. It was surrounded by huge walls that nobody could penetrate. David and his men, they were camped out in the valley down below. Here's the thing about the valley. Everything's fine in the valley. There's peace in the valley, right? There's no giants in the valley. There's no enemies in the valley. But there's no growth in the valley. There's no change. There's no progress. There's nothing new in the valley. It's the same thing year after year after year. David knew if I don't defeat this enemy, every time I look up, I'm going to see the dream that God promised me. Imagine every morning you thank God for this and thank you, Lord, have a good day, and you come out of your tent and you look up and you see what God promised you. It's right there in your view. You can see it, but your enemy has it. In verse 6, they screamed at him over the walls. The Jebusites told David, go home. You'll never get in here. Even the blind and crippled will keep you out because our walls are impenetrable. There are certain enemies that if we don't defeat them, they will taunt us our whole life. Pornography, if you don't defeat it, it'll taunt you your whole life. Alcohol, if you don't defeat it, it'll taunt you your whole life. Anger, easily offended. There's some enemy we're all battling that God says, if you don't step in front of this enemy face to face, it'll taunt you the rest of your life. The Jebusites knew that David is not one to give up. They knew that David was a fighter, so they expected any day for David and his men to come climbing over the walls of the city. This specific city was very sophisticated one of the most sophisticated cities of its day, in that it actually had a sewer system like we talked about earlier. It had these gutter tunnels where all the sewage of the people in the city would come through the mountain and it would spill out into the backside of the valley. Um, Remember the movie Shawshank Redemption? Remember when Andy is crawling through 500 yards of sewage just to get to freedom? I had the perfect, the most perfect clip that I wanted to show you of that, exactly what I want to show you, but there was a cuss word right in the middle of it. And I thought the Northerners won't even notice, but the Southerners would probably get upset about it. I wonder, would you crawl through raw sewage if it meant getting victory in that area of your life? See, David was willing to do something that nobody else was willing to do. In 2 Samuel 5, verse 8, David told his men to get the Jebusites, let us go up through the underground gutter tunnels and the water shafts. Instead of going over the walls, David and his men humbled themselves and they got on their hands and knees and crawled through sewers to surprise the enemy and God gave them the victory. Here's my question. How bad do you want it? How bad do you really, really, really want it? We all admire David and all the great things he accomplished, but David was willing to do something that most people aren't willing to do. Ephesians 6, 13 says, Put on the whole armor of God, the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. God never designed one piece of armor to cover up our backside. It's like the hospital gown that you think you put on wrong. No, you put it on right. That's how they designed it. I really don't know why they do that. 
That's so uncalled for. But anyway, you know how I'm, I'm not going to show you. Anyway, so you know, it's because the armor of God was not created for cowards. God never intended for us to run from our enemy. Amen. When you turn around and run, you're leaving yourself completely exposed. Point number three, and we're done, is this. Righteous people fall. Uh, Proverbs 24, 16. Though a righteous man falls, he will always rise up again. Um, it doesn't say if a righteous man falls. It says though a righteous man falls. Other translations say since a righteous man falls. It's so interesting to me how many Christians are shocked when another Christian falls. It's in the Bible. See, we know unrighteous people fall, right? Hey, those guys, they're unsaved. Can you believe what they're doing? Well, I can easily believe it because they're unsaved. Well, did you hear about sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so? Does that shock you? The Bible literally says righteous people fall. It's kind of like when Jesus was telling his disciples, all of you will be made to fall and stumble. And Peter says, no, I won't. They will, but I won't. Jesus is thinking, I'm quoting Zechariah, Peter. It's already in the Bible. Like, it's already in the Bible. You're not going to change the Bible, Peter. You're all going to fall. Not me, Lord. Not me, Lord. Righteous people fall. So if you've married a man that's righteous, don't be shocked. He's going to fall. And this scripture is not a sexist scripture. It's for ladies, too, by the way. Except for that scripture in Proverbs about nagging wives. That's only for women. But this one is for men and women right here, okay? So if righteous people fall and unrighteous people fall, what's the difference? I thought that, that I would be better than them. I thought that there would be something different about me than the unrighteous people. If, I, if righteous people fall and unrighteous people and if I fall, well, which one am I? Am I not saved? Could I possibly be an unrighteous man not going to heaven? If righteous fall and unrighteous fall, how in the world am I going to know which one I am? Here's how. Because righteous people always get back up. Righteous people never lose the desire to serve Jesus even when they fall. Righteous people never lose the desire to forgive our enemies even when we fall. Righteous people never lose the desire to have true peace and true joy from the Holy Spirit even when we fall. So if you're here today and you've fallen, don't be shocked. Just get back up. That's what we, we were intended not to not fall. We were intended to be able to get back up when we fall. Um, I'll close with this story. I, I was look, I'm watching a, a documentary, I think it was on Netflix, uh, a few years ago about the Category 5 hurricanes that, that happened down south here in, in the U.S. And uh, it was this group of guys. They were in a van, and they were videotaping everything. It was maybe two days after the hurricane had finally got done. The sun's out, you know. And it showed, you know, buildings demolished and houses gone and vehicles moved for miles and all this. There was a botanist in the group. And he was, um, you know, showing everybody the huge oak trees that had been uprooted from the storm and, and carried hundreds of yards away. Tall, hundred-foot pine trees uprooted, blown away. Elms, oaks, magnolias, maple trees, they had them all listed there. As they were videotaping... Um, and all these trees dead and gone and, and debris everywhere, you kept seeing these palm trees that were standing straight up like they were just planted the day before, perfectly intact, just standing there. 
And everyone in the van was like, what in the world is going on? How are all these? And the botanist just kind of started laughing. He started kind of teaching us, you know, on the video what was going on. He said, and I'm going to use this line, God created a specific type of palm tree that God put in, um, in tropical places intentionally because this type of palm tree, when the wind blows and it huffs and puffs and 100 mile an hour, 150 mile an hour, when the palm tree was designed to be able to stay in the ground, roots in the ground, and it actually can bend over all the way on the, without coming out to the point where the top branches are touching the ground. And once the winds stop, once everything ceases and the sun comes out, that palm tree just bends right back up and stands straight and tall like it was before. The botanist went on to say something else that's very interesting is during the storm, they've discovered that's when the roots of this palm tree actually grow and get stronger. Not only that, but while the wind is blowing it down, he said you could even time it by the hour. The palm tree is actually getting taller and taller. So when the sun finally comes out and the storm stops, when that palm tree comes up, it's actually taller and stronger than it was before the storm. The reason I love it is because Psalms 92.12 says, The righteous who fall will flourish like a palm tree. He could have said, we'll flourish like an oak tree and be big and strong. We'll flourish like a pine tree and be tall and impressive to everybody. He said, I created you to be like a palm tree because I know the enemy's going to attack you. I know people are going to come against you. I know you're going to be tempted to lose your hope and your peace and your joy. But I made you like the palm tree so every time you get knocked down, you can just rise right back up again and be taller and stronger in your faith than you were before. Strong storms don't last, but strong people do. And the bigger the storm, I believe, the bigger the destiny. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.